Hello everyone, Dr. Stillman here. And today we've got an exciting masterclass that I'm delayed in bringing to you because I was doing more and more digging and preparing it for you all. Today we're going to be talking about something very important, very interesting, very, very near and dear to my heart because it's one of my favorite supplements that I see moving the needle the most for my patients. And yet I also think it's one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated vitamins, and that is vitamin B6. Specifically today, we're going to talk about the vitamin B6 paradox. Now, in short, this paradox is the paradoxical property of vitamin B6 to in deficiency cause a neuropathy, but in excess cause a neuropathy. So too much, you get the same problems as too little, right? What a fascinating problem. Why is this? To make a long story short, B6 exists as a series of different um, forms or vitamins, we call them. Some of these do not work. They're not active, right? Think about an engine that's frozen up. It's an engine you, that you could put in a car, but it's not going to take the car anywhere. It has to be fixed, and in this case, phosphorylated for the vitamin to work. So the active form is P5P, or um, sometimes it's called... Uh, PLP, and the inactive form is generally called pyridoxine, usually labeled as pyridoxine HCL. The reason I decided to cover this is that Dave Asprey made this quote the other day or, or post the other day that bothered me. This is the post, stop taking B6 now, and you can read this for yourself if you care to over here where he talks about what I've just basically uh, spelled out for you guys. But what you take away from this post, if you read it, is that your body can use very, very, very little of the B6 as pyridoxine. He calls it the synthetic form. I don't think that's fair. Pyridoxine exists in nature, um, and many different conformers or vitamins of this exist in nature, so I don't think it's fair to call it synthetic, uh, but he's calling it that anyway, and I'm sure he may, he may beg to differ with me respectfully. And for the record, I posted on this and said, I don't think that this is a big problem. And he said, look at the comments. You're wrong. And I did look at the comments and there are people in the comments who've mentioned that they've had family members hurt by um, synthetic or, you know, pyridoxine HCL and supplements, which really surprised me because I, and so I sent him, I said, Hey, thank you for, you know, enlightening me on this. I was misinformed or wrong. However, I think that what bothers me about posts like this is that you would read this post and you would come away with the idea that any clinician who ever puts you on pyridoxine HCL is an idiot. And the simple fact of the matter, as we're going to discuss today in the papers we're going to review, is that that's a gross oversimplification. And part of why his post got me so upset was that when people come to me having been inundated by content like this, stop taking B6, never take vitamin C, never take vitamin D, they get this idea that anyone who tells them to take it is an idiot who doesn't understand some information that someone, I'm not singling out Dave here because this is a very common thing, that they somehow have special access to knowledge um, or special knowledge that everyone else is ignorant of. This makes for great marketing material Lots of people get sucked into this and they're like, oh my gosh, wow, I didn't know this. They get on the email list, they buy the supplements that are being sold to them, they buy the courses, they buy the programs, they buy all the stuff, right? And I, I like to say I don't hate the player, I hate the game. 
But the reality is this is a nuanced issue. You can use pyridoxine HCL and get good clinical outcomes. And you can use pyridoxine 5-phosphate or PLP or P5P, whatever you want to call it, and get better outcomes. Do I think you need to use P5P when you're using high doses of B6? Yes, as we're going to discuss later, but dosing is critical. And all this comes back to one of the ancient principles of medicine, which is the dose makes the poison. I believe it was Paracelsus who said that. And so this idea of stop taking vitamin B6 now, it really, it, does it suck people in? Yes. Is it a good argument for many people? Do many people need to be aware of this? Of course. However, dot, 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 foreshadowing, it's important to understand there's some nuance here. So another thing that he points out here is that what's even worse is that 10 milligrams is enough to start symptoms. But as we're going to talk about in some of these papers, the kinetics of B6 are very weird. They're very weird because you'll see people take way higher doses of it than that for years with no problems. And you'll see people take lower doses than that and end up with symptoms. So we're going to try and make sense of that today based on the papers and the literature and the science because this is a great example of how something simple can be made extremely confusing and complex and how well-intentioned consumers can buy supplements that are not right for them, that are not even safe for them, that are totally safe and appropriate for the vast majority of the public, okay? So on that note, Let's jump into some papers and really talk about what's going on here. All right. So first paper we're going to talk about is revisiting the evidence for neuropathy caused by pyridoxine deficiency or excess. This was a great paper. 2014, kind of getting on there in years, nine years old, right? From the abstract, pyridoxine deficiency and excess have been implicated as a cause for peripheral neuropathy. Neurological practitioners frequently discourage patients from taking pyridoxine in excess of 50 milligrams per day, given concerns around the development of a toxic sensory neuropathy. Very reasonable. Very low doses of daily pyridoxine are required to prevent peripheral neuropathy. Translation, you do not need much vitamin B6 to avoid neuropathy. And for those of you who don't know what neuropathy is, and usually this is a sensory neuropathy, a neuropathy is a process through which your nerves or neurons begin to degrade or even die. And so you can lose, when you have a neuropathy, you lose sensation. Uh, you can lose motor function with certain types of neuropathies. Uh, and then you can, you, and then you, sensation is a really interesting term, right? There's lots of different types of sensation. There's cold, there's hot, there's pain. There's your ability to sense where you are in space. Like right now, right, I'm using my sense of space to tell myself where my hand is, right? So there's lots of different types of sensory neuropathies. And then there are um, neuropathies where people have pain. They have pins and needles feelings. They'll feel like they've got, you know, um, they're walking on broken glass. I mean, horrible, horrible pain is associated with neuropathy. But anyway, so you don't need a lot of B6 to prevent peripheral neuropathy. In fact, if you look at the average person's diet, their intake of B6, even if they eat a lot of food and they eat a lot of B6-rich foods, is well under 10 milligrams. And in many, it's under five, under two, under three, right? So you don't need a lot of this to avoid the most severe outcome of a B6 deficiency. 
So supplementation with pyridoxine at doses greater than 50 milligrams per day for extended durations may be harmful and should be discouraged. Okay, that's their sum up. But let's go over why they said this. So normal values of plasma vitamin B6 levels vary depending upon the laboratory standards and whether plasma P5P or total pyridoxine is measured. Literature based on HPLC suggests normal plasma levels of above 30 nanomoles per liter for pyridoxine 5-phosphate and 40 nanomoles per liter for total pyridoxine. Our hospital laboratory, author's laboratory obviously, uses HPLC and has established pyridoxine 5-phosphate levels, normal levels of more than 20 nanomoles per liter and less than 96, okay? Pyridoxine deficiency and excess have long been associated with peripheral neuropathy. However, there is no systematic review to guide the maximum safe dose and clinical utility of this vitamin in the treatment of peripheral neuropathy. Isn't that interesting? You'd think we'd have worked this out by now in 2023. This next part's very interesting. So literature on neuropathy attributed to primary pyridoxine deficiency is scant. Although pyridoxine deficiency anemia was well known by the 1950s, the only patient with pyridoxine responsive anemia and neuropathy was reported in 1963. This single reported patient had a significant preceding weight loss and was from a low socioeconomic, oh, sorry, a low income social background. She may have had other coexisting nutritional deficiencies which were not investigated. There are no other case reports attributing neuropathy primarily to pyridoxine uh, deficiency. Um, I believe that's, I believe they meant to say with anemia. So why is this so important? One of the primary findings in my, both my medical practice and our coaching practice are that people do not know what they're eating and what they're not eating. And the reason they mention this is that the B6 often gets blamed when really the patient has another problem. And this, I think, explains why a lot of people may reach for the B6 and say, that caused my neuropathy. It was in that darn supplement I was taking. But if that's the case, then why can so many people consume that multivitamin and not get this problem? Because spoiler alert, there's loads of B6s, pyridoxine, HCL out there, loads of people taking it. I can tell you as a clinician who's aware of these problems in this literature, we're not running into this in clinical practice. People are not running in on their multivitamin being diagnosed left and right with polyneuro with neuropathies because of B6 and multivitamins or dedicated supplements. It's not common. And so that's why, you know, while there may be anecdotal cases and the occasional person who's been hurt by pyridoxine HCL, as Dave Asprey points out in his post, I don't think that it's fair to say to people, well, none of you can take this or to create the impression that everyone who recommends pyridoxine HCL is an undereducated under incompetent. But anyway, all right. A study of 49 patients with alcohol-related peripheral neuropathy showed a concurrent decreased serum pyridoxine levels in 24% of patients. However, there were additional thymine, folic acid, biotin, and riboflavin deficiencies in these patients, which may have contributed to the development of a peripheral neuropathy. Translation. What that means is that many people who end up even with a diagnosis of this may have had other diet and lifestyle issues that were contributing to this problem. Again, blaming the B6 is easy, it's convenient, it may be the thing that you reach for, but it may not be your issue. All right. Now, this part was really interesting to me. So most of our information regarding pyridoxine deficiency neuropathy comes from early experience with isoniazid where in, in very impoverished areas of the world where tuberculosis is still very prevalent. 
So they did this series of studies uh, where they um, patients with pulmonary tuberculosis were randomly allocated to four doses of isoniazid. Isoniazid is an antibiotic that we know depletes B6, okay? So if you give someone enough isoniazid, you will give them B6 deficiency. The authors indicated that the patients were recruited from the lower income groups in Madras City and were on a poor diet, but did not provide specifics of their diet. How could they, to be fair to them? Peripheral neuropathy was initially identified by a non-blinded examiner and was confirmed by a blinded examiner. That's really very thorough of them, I think. Exclusively based on history and exam and without electrophysiological confirmation, a total of 20 patients, 6%, with peripheral neuropathy were identified over a follow-up of 12 months. The occurrence of neuropathy was related to the total dose of isoniazid. Translation, the more isoniazid given, the more likely the patient was to develop a peripheral neuropathy, okay? Um, I'm not going to go through all that. Um, a double-blinded randomized trial assigned 98 patients from the same community and treated with isoniazid for pulmonary TB to four groups receiving either 6 or 48 milligrams per day of pyridoxine or 6 milligrams per day of pyridoxine in the form of vitamin B complex or pyridoxine-free vitamin B complex. Translation. They took almost 100 patients from that community and they, um, sorry, treated with isoniazid and they put them in four groups. They either got pyridoxine-containing um, uh, preparations of a multivitamin. They, and this, I'm not going to run through the specifics of this. But basically, what they're testing is, do we fix the isoniazid-related neuropathy with pyridoxine or not? Okay. Only patients in the pyridoxine-free B-complex group, 7 or 24 patients or 29%, developed symptoms and signs of peripheral neuropathy. These patients were subsequently treated with six milligrams of pyridoxine daily, which resulted in clinical improvement in five patients. That's five out of seven, by the way. So what does that mean? It implies that in people who are B6 deficient due to isoniazid, you can give them pyridoxine HCL. They're very specific about giving them pyridoxine. And the body will phosphorylate it because the body can do that. It is something that it's capable of, and it will then use it. Otherwise, how can you explain the improvement in five of the seven people who developed this isoniazid-related B6 deficiency, right? And this is why I have a problem with this idea that the body can't use pyridoxine. Well, if it can't use pyridoxine, then how can you explain giving people pyridoxine and seeing their peripheral neuropathies improve? A more recent, this is another study from them, a more recent single-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial of 85 children treated with isoniazid for tuberculosis from a different population assigned patients to pyridoxine supplementation versus placebo. Neuropathy with that was diagnosed clinically over a total follow-up of nine months, which included three months after discontinuation of isoniazid. Surprisingly, there were no patients with symptoms and signs of neuropathy in either group. What does that tell you? The age of the patient matters. The older you are, the more likely you are to have any medical problem. The less well everything works. Kids can get away with crazy stuff. Teenagers, 20-something-year-olds, they can get away with stuff that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-olds only dream of being able to get away with again. And so, again, right? it doesn't make your clinician wrong to give you pyridoxine HCL. There's obviously populations in which it has a value. But anyway, this is an interesting um, 
comment that they made on this, right? They said one possibility is that the two groups had different pyridoxine intakes from nutritional sources. The patient potentially at risk of pyridoxine deficiency neuropathy has poor nutrition along with comorbidities predisposing to neuropathy or taking a pyridoxine antagonist. Many people on multivitamins that contain things such as pyridoxine HCL today are on multivitamins because they know that their diet is absolute trash and they do not have the willpower or the desire to fix it. And respectfully, to blame a multivitamin for problems that arise from a fundamentally imbalanced diet is, I think, unfair. And I think that people need to get the message that if you're not really willing to engage with dietary change and improve your diet uh, in order to improve your health, then I'm not even sure you should show up to you know coaching programs with people like me because we just kind of bang our head against the wall and try and get you to change your ways. This is why we always start with some combination of diet and lifestyle modifications and that's why we don't run around just telling people, take this multivitamin, take that multivitamin. You got to take this. You got to take that. We actually look at what people are eating. We help them understand what holes there are in their nutrition. And then we help them plug those holes, not with supplements, but with food, right? All right. But anyway. Okay. Next up. This is an interesting one with uh, with rat models. So whenever we study nutritional deficiencies, we often look at literature uh, gained from animal models because nutritional deficiencies are really interesting to study in animals because if you control their environment, you can totally and completely induce a complete uh, deficiency, right? So in this case, a rat model of pyridoxine deficiency, a diet devoid of pyridoxine produced measurable abnormalities in animals' walking parameters beginning at four months and reaching a plateau at about eight months. Translation, when you deprive rats of pyridoxine, it takes four to eight months for them to manifest these symptoms. And by the way, the great thing about animals too is they don't have a placebo effect that we're aware of anyway because they don't know if the water they're drinking has got pyridoxine in it or not. They're just animals. Addition of 30 parts per million of pyridoxine to the rat's diet, equivalent to approximately 2 milligrams per day for the human diet, produced almost complete reversal of the effects of pyridoxine deficiency in this study. Hmm, how interesting. So 2 milligrams per day arguably should be enough to address pyridoxine deficiency, severe pyridoxine deficiency in humans. The association between pyridoxine deficiency and peripheral neuropathy has drawn interest in the treatment of neuropathies with supplementation of this vitamin. Pyridoxine has been used for the treatment of a variety of neuropathies with no clear or reproducible benefits. Translation, people keep throwing pyridoxine at neurological issues. Some patients see significant benefit. Others do not see one. What does that tell you? It's factors beyond the pyridoxine that are likely explaining this discrepancy in results. These may be issues with the formulation of the pyridoxine. It may be differences in the dose, and it may be problems or differences in the patients and individuals. An uncontrolled open-label trial combined a, combined a heterogeneous group of painful peripheral nervous system disorders and concluded that treatment with pyridoxine improved pain in 69% of these patients regardless of the cause. Isn't that interesting? And this is another reason why I really find it to be unfair to say that using this therapeutic agent is irresponsible and inappropriate when you see studies like this where you see this massive improvement across the board. Now, you have to admit, right, this is an uncontrolled open label trial. So it's profoundly um, open to uh, placebo effects. And that's an interesting point here, right? People want to blame their problems on biochemical processes. Lord knows I've spent most of my career chasing biochemical causes for people's problems. 
But the fact of the matter is you can take two people with identical laboratory abnormalities and one of them has radically different symptoms from another. Do I see them both improving as you address their nutritional deficiencies and imbalances? Yes. But frequently what you'll find is that the differentiator between two people isn't their biochemical milieu or environment. It is actually their mindset and whether or not they either believe in the therapies they're doing, they have a positive outlook on life, all the other things that we get into in mind-body medicine. And that's why, again, blaming the B6 is an easy and convenient solution, but we also have to address that issue because one of my sneaking suspicions is that people who don't recover from things like, say, toxic B6 doses, um, because this is across the board true in many, many neurological issues and pain syndromes, is that they have a mind-body medicine component to their illness that they're not adequately addressing. And that's why you'll hear these crazy testimonials if you go out there from guys like Joe Dispenza and you know other masters or teachers of meditation and mindfulness of people engaging in these practices. And all of a sudden their Lyme or their MS or their whatever is just magically in remission, right? It's not reproducible. It had nothing to do with their biochemical state, but the results cannot be argued with. So anyway, here's another interesting uh, study that they talk about. So a subsequent small double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial of patients with diabetic neuropathy neither found low pyridoxine serum at the start of the trial, nor did it find any significant change in nerve conduction studies after four months of treatment with 50 milligrams of pyridoxine three times daily as compared with control. Interestingly, a significant number of patients in both pyridoxine and control groups reported significant improvement in sensory symptoms, suggesting a strong placebo effect. Indeed. As I, as I mentioned before, a lot of people want to blame the B6. I don't think that's fair. You've got to think more broadly, more deeply. You have to be holistic in your approach to wellness or you're going to fail. All right. In another double-blind placebo-controlled study, six patients with pyridoxine deficiency and electrophysiological evidence of carpal tunnel syndrome were assigned to treatment with pyridoxine or placebo. At 15 and 27 days after treatment, patients treated with pyridoxine showed electrophysiological improvement as compared with the control. Subsequent larger double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials did not reproduce these benefits. Translation, we are having trouble replicating the benefits or many of the supposed dangers of this treatment. Again, this comes back to, to factors beyond the trials that are not being controlled for that lead to this massive heterogeneity in results. Okay. Several individual cases, and this is the next piece of this, right? So I just got finished talking about the pyridoxine deficiency part of this paper. Now let's talk about pyridoxine excess. Several individual cases of neuropathy attributed to excessive pyridoxine intake have been reported in the literature. These cases all involve high doses of pyridoxine ranges from two to 10 grams. This paper, uh, we're going to go over doses lower than this later, but look at that. Those are huge doses, two to 10 grams. When we're talking about most multivitamins containing maybe five to 10. Two initial retrospective case series did not support an association of pyridoxine supplementation and neuropathy in humans. A retrospective study of 630 women taking 40 to 200 milligrams per day of pyridoxine during the, per the perimenstrual period for several years found no symptoms of neuropathy. Okay, what does that mean? And why do I think this is so important? So what we see, right, if we if, if pyridoxine, HCL, can cause this neuropathy, there should be, A, a dose-dependent effect, and you should see it consistently. 
So how can you explain that giving 630 women 40 to 200 milligrams per day of doses that are very high never cause a neuropathy? I go back to the, the point that I made earlier where they studied this in children and they saw that they didn't see a difference between the two groups, one with pyridoxine, one without, when they were being treated with isoniazid for tuberculosis. So again, heterogeneity of results means there's factors beyond just the dose and the form of the vitamin uh, in play, and you've got to be aware of those. And that's part of why I'm not a fan of patients just saying, well, I'm going to take a multivitamin. I got that covered. Even if you show up to a coaching program with us and you're not in the medical program and you're asking us questions about, you know, multivitamins and this and that and the other thing, we're going to start you with a bunch of other stuff rather than talk to you about a multivitamin because it's not really, in my opinion and philosophy, where your wellness starts. Your wellness starts with your diet. Okay. Another retrospective study of 17 patients with homocystinuria treated with 200 to 500 milligrams of pyridoxine for 7 to 24 years did not find any symptoms, clinical signs, or electrophysiological evidence for peripheral neuropathy. Translation. They took 17 patients. They treated them with massive doses of pyridoxine for 7 to 24 years, and they didn't find any signs of this peripheral neuropathy. That's profound. Okay. However, a small open-label uncontrolled trial of five volunteers, I wonder why these people volunteered, treated with one to three grams per day of pyridoxine showed subjective and objective evidence for sensory neuropathy within 1.5 to seven months of treatment in a dose-dependent fashion. That's remarkable. One to three grams per day? Grams? Wow. If 10 milligrams is what Dave Dasprey is worried about, we're talking about tenfold that and then tenfold, a hundredfold, and then you consistently get this result. And that's only after 1.5 to 7 months. This is a huge window, huge window in which you can dose this. And when I say window, I mean that you've got this massive gap between doses that are being used clinically that get results. I've seen people respond to 5, 10 milligrams a day. And up here, gram size quantities, big differences here. There's a lot more to this than just, you know, never take pyridoxine HCL ever again. A cross-sectional study of 172 women taking 50 to 500 milligrams per day of pyridoxine showed evidence of sensory neuropathy in 103, 60% on history and examination. Okay. So hang on, that's out of context. Uh, that was in, oh, anyway. The evidence for a role of pyridoxine deficiency and excess in peripheral neuropathy is limited. It is likely that very low doses of daily pyridoxine are sufficient to prevent peripheral neuropathy. That I absolutely agree with. And I don't think I know anyone who would disagree with that statement who understands this vitamin at all. However, dot, 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 I think that throwing out the idea that we can use doses higher than that of pyridoxine HCL without hurting people and while still getting clinical results are uh, unfounded in general with the public. All right, next paper. Vitamin B6 in health supplements and neuropathy, case series assessment of spontaneously reported cases. This was a really interesting uh, paper. This came out of the Netherlands. And this is a pharmacovigilance center. So for those of you who don't know, pharmacovigilance is uh, the study or the practice of looking for negative effects from pharmaceutical agents. So often these times these people will be plugged in with poison control. They'll be plugged in with pharmacies. They're often, you know, government agencies or government um, employees in some way or another. Uh, and so these people put together all the different series that they could from at least the Netherlands, from what I can tell, 
on B6 deficiency, right? And so what they were able to find is 90 reports um, that are where B6 deficiency or B6 um, uh, toxicity has been blamed. And their bottom line here is that a case series of 90 Dutch spontaneous reports indicates that prolonged use mean latency 2.2 years of vitamin B6, most often in dosages higher than the maximum acceptable limits of 25 milligrams for adults is associated with neuropathic complaints. Boy, that is a long time to take a high dose to get a big problem. Okay. And I think that's very important because people will wind up with this notion that, okay, well, we've got to avoid any amount of this. I don't think that's fair. This is an interesting anecdote or note that they make in this paper. A dose response relationship increases the likelihood of a causal relationship. However, no statistically significant correlation between the serum B6 level and the milligrams of B6 in the product could be found. Isn't that interesting? Why is there not an association between the dose and the serum level? Several case series have described neuropathy as an effect of elevated B6 levels, albeit with extremely high doses of B6 in some cases. However, literature also exists on prolonged use of B6 in patients who did not develop neuropathy. Again, why did these people not develop neuropathy? I think that's a very interesting issue. And the last paper I'm going to cover here, the vitamin B6 paradox, supplementation with high concentrations of pyridoxine leads to decreased B6 function. Since 2014, 50 cases or greater than 50 cases of sensory neuronal pain due to vitamin B6 supplementation were reported. In this study, they actually did a really cool series of experiments where they looked at this in, in vitro. And they found that pyridoxine-induced cell death in a concentration-dependent way in this neurological cell line. The other vitamins did not affect cell viability. Those are the other forms of, of B6. Pyridoxine significantly increased the expression of some apoptosis-dependent genes. Moreover, both pyridoxine-5-phosphate-dependent enzymes were inhibited by pyridoxine translation. The active form of B6 is P5P. Pyridoxine alone can inhibit that. The inactive form pyridoxine competitively inhibits the active pyridoxine 5-phosphate. Consequently, symptoms of B6 supplementation are similar to those of B6 deficiency. Again, this is from 2017, a little bit more recent than one of the other papers we covered today. So I will show you guys what they found. You can see here in this graph, this is a very cool graph. So the control group, nothing put in the medium, no increase in cell death. They add this toxin, Triton X, massive increase in cell death, 100%. They add pyridoxine, that's PN, pyridoxine, increase in cell death. Now, let's be clear, though. They use doses they know are going to be toxic, okay? And then you see this effect fade away as you get into the active forms of these as far as cell death, all right? And that's the whole point, is that the dose does make the poison, and the form matters a great deal. So... I won't dwell uh, too much on this, but one of the last things I want to mention is that I think the way that people are dosing B6 willy-nilly with supplements, you know, I don't usually recommend supplements to anyone without some lab data. And I want to explain why. Because I will use high doses of B6. I have always, since I started using them, used the active form because I was aware of this and I was wary of hurting anyone. Uh, but I also think that using B6 randomly is... I, I just, I don't see people, A, getting good outcomes, and B, you will get the occasional person who says, yeah, I took this supplement or that supplement, and it just really uh, messed me up, right? And that, to Dave Asprey's point earlier, is 
people are doing this. They are taking supplements randomly and they are getting a, a small number, albeit of bad outcomes, right? And to put this in perspective, I'm talking about the number of cases here that we've talked about today, 90 from the Netherlands, 50 here and there. It's very hard to find actual case reports of B6 deficiency It is or B6 excess and toxicity. It is a very rare clinical entity. In my career, uh, spanning hospitals, nursing homes, my own you know, private uh, concierge functional medicine practice, I have never seen this. And you may ask, well, how do you know you didn't miss it? Well, the number one symptom of B6 toxicity is this neurological syndrome. And I can't tell you the last time somebody came in and said, I have a sensory neuropathy. Now, they obviously wouldn't call it that. They would say, I, I can't feel this or can't feel that. But we just don't see this a lot. The other reason I think that's so important is that I'm using B6 as pyridoxine HCL on a daily basis in my practice. Many of my patients are on it right now. I took some this morning for the record. And we don't see this product creating the problems that it's being are being blamed on it. And the reason I've gone through this literature in such detail today is to show you, yeah, you can give people with B6 deficiency pyridoxine HCL and they'll get better. And you can give people this for huge in huge doses for long periods of time and they have no adverse effects. So how can you say this thing is truly as toxic as it may be made out to be? But I digress. This is why I am absolutely bullish on testing for people because if you want to really get well fast, getting the dose right is key. And you would be crazy to spend hundreds of dollars a month or quarter on supplements and not get some kind of data on which supplements you actually need. Otherwise, you're just throwing that money out the window. So from the paper, one of the pathways in which pyridoxal phosphate is essential is the kynorinine pathway. In this pathway, the amino acid tryptophan is metabolized to nicotinamide. Intermediate products formed are quinolinic acid kynorin, kynorinine, 3-hydroxykynurinine, say that 10 times fast, and 3-hydroxyanthranilic acid. 3-HK, 3-hydroxykynurinine, is converted into xanthorinic acid, and 3-HAA, that's 3-hydroxy, I mean, who's counting, right? 3-hydroxyanthranilinic acid by two pyridoxine phosphate-dependent enzymes. 3-HK is a known neurotoxic compound which is related to central nervous system diseases. The kynurinine pathway has been linked to several central nervous system diseases, such as Huntington's and Alzheimer's. Significantly increased 3-HK levels were found in brain tissues of Huntington's disease patients. I won't go on and on about this relationship, but to make a long story short, it is well known in the functional medicine world that you can look at intracellular levels of B6 by looking at this kynorinine pathway. When I see B6 pathway metabolites that are elevated, it tells me there's not enough B6 around to run this pathway, and I give high doses of B6, and I am routinely impressed with the clinical results I get. And I'll use doses like 50 milligrams twice a day, but I will always use P5P, and I'm very careful about doing that for this reason. So, all right, that's enough about the papers. Hopefully, I'm not boring you to tears with all this extremely technical information. There's one more thing I want to share with you guys, and that's my first thoughts when I read Dave's post were, hang on a minute. Two of the smartest people I know are Russell Jaffe and Chris Shade. Russell Jaffe runs Perk Health, 
and Russell Jaffe makes a really wonderful multivitamin. The only one I consider using, frankly, called Perk Lifeguard. Why do I like Perk Lifeguard? Because I can't find anything wrong with it. Thank you for asking. And I want to point out to you guys what's in Perk Health Lifeguard. Russell formulated it with a combination of B6 as pyridoxine HCL and pyridoxine 5-phosphate for a total of 200 milligrams. And it's 160 milligrams of pyridoxine HCL and pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Now, if you don't know Russell Jaffe, he is one of the most meticulous, uh, detail-oriented people I've ever met. And everything I've seen in this supplement, everything I know about this supplement, Russell is downright obsessive about the quality of his products. And there is no, no recess of the biochemical literature that he has not spent plenty of time in. Every time I talk to Russell, he gives me chapter and verse on something I didn't know about, and he teaches me a lot, which is why I'm very grateful for his friendship and his mentorship. And I am sure that he did his due diligence and his homework on this. Now, if you read a post like Dave's and you come and look at Perk Health Lifeguard, you're going to think, well, I better stay away from this because it's got pyridoxine HCL. I don't think that's fair. Russell would not put this product out if there were any real danger of it hurting anyone. And I'm sure that's why, because he's using a 200 milligram dose, he also included the active form so that he's sure that he's not going to give anyone pyridoxine HCL toxicity. Okay. The second person I thought of was Chris Shade. Okay. This is Chris Shade's ultra vitamin, which I took a dose of this morning because I'm getting ready to go mix what I call functional medicine mocktails at a uh, retreat put on by some digital marketing executives uh, next month, which I'm really excited for. And I want to give them some what I call functional medicine mocktails to help show them how nutrients can really change how they think, how they feel, and can really assist them as essentially performance enhancers. So you'll notice that Chris Shade put in this B6 as pyridoxine HCL, but what dose did he use? 6.7 milligrams. Now, if I found anything taking care of patients who blindly take supplements without thinking through what they should take or why they should take it, it's that they will often go way, way overboard and they will take two, three, four times what the bottle instructions tell them to take. And I haven't actually sat down or talked with Russell or Chris about product formulation or you know what kind of testing people should get, but I just spoke with Chris on some panels at uh, Runga, this event in Austin that I go to every year. It's a nice, wonderful health and wellness retreat. You guys should come next year. Go check them out if you're not aware of them. And, uh, you know, these are very smart, thoughtful people. They understand the value of testing. And so they're not, and, and they're, believe me when I tell you, like Chris Shade is front and center at A4M, last I checked every year. He is in with the who's who of functional medicine. He's not stupid and he's not ignorant. And I guarantee you, if he's using pyridoxine HCL in his product, he's getting good results with it. And the clinicians prescribing it are not seeing this problem. Are there those out there who will? Yes. Should they be asking better questions about why they have these problems and other people don't? 100%. Because the more I practice, the more impressed I am with the number of things that I find people doing wrong, that then when they go out and try and do something that works for someone else, else it doesn't work for them. Or it even, as in this case is the case, makes them worse. And this is why investing in yourself and getting guidance and coaching and counseling is invaluable. 
the amount of money people spend on their functional medicine care, their coaching, their personal training, their diets, their supplements, their organic food, their this, that, and the other thing blows my mind. And I have coaching programs that when we're doing things like promotions, they can be as little as $100 a month. And you can come in and you get multiple Q&As. You get plenty of time with me and Jim Laird. We're able to steer you towards good products, good options, good opportunities. We'll get, get you set up with different exercise programs and routines. We'll help you pick the ones that are right for you. And obviously, for those of you who really want to spend time with me one-on-one, -on -one, we've got executive concierge wellness programs. And we've also got, if, you, if that's not in your price range, we've got programs with nurse practitioners who check in with me every single day. Speaking of which, I have to get off the uh, Q&A, so I have time to talk to them today. But anyway, B6 Paradox, fascinating topic. I really am saddened by the direction that people are going where this like tiny attention span that TikTok and Instagram are training people into leads to totally unnuanced conversations about these things like stop taking this, start taking that. It really doesn't do justice to the complexity of your body. And I really hope you guys will continue to tune into the, my material where I try to give you a balanced perspective so that you aren't, um, you, you don't wind up wasting your time, wasting your money, and also wasting your precious vitality doing things like worrying or feel, feeling fearful when, in fact, um, most of you, most of you, most of the time, have nothing to fear and nothing to worry about. So long as you're getting good care uh, from good clinicians and you're doing the fundamentals that we talk about in the five fundamentals, and we'll coach you up from there if you jump into that program. So. You can go to my link tree to find my special offers. You can join our Fundamentals of Wellness coaching program. Right now, it's a steal. It's 200 a month. You get eight coaching calls a month, I think, with that. Four with Jim, two with me. Well, four with Jim, two with me and Jim, plus a coaching call with Jim for strength and conditioning on the third Saturday of every month. So as always, thank you guys for watching. And don't forget, if you are a Substack subscriber and you're watching this later, you can upgrade to a premium subscription and you can get a Q&A with me. It's usually not more than five or six people. Sometimes it's only two or three right after this every Monday that I do a masterclass, which is usually three out of four in a month. So enough about that. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Oh, one more thing. Get on our, our newsletter at stillmanwellness.com because every Thursday now we're doing a webinar that is free to our newsletter subscribers who are on the list but it is behind a paywall once it's done. So if you're coming in and you want to watch or, or hear our best thoughts and get an idea for what kind of content we cover in our coaching programs and courses, you'd be crazy not to be on our email list. This content is unbelievably valuable and we're really going to help a lot of people by helping spell out these issues in these long, long form webinars, you know, 45 minutes to an hour is what they tend to run. So get on our email list at stillandwellness.com and find out um, about some of the things that we can't say here on the legacy social media platforms where we are censored because we do not bend the knee to the powers that be. All right, everyone, that really is enough. Take care, everyone. Have a great Monday. Don't forget to get outside.